Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear from leading thinkers from our university and around the world. If you would like to hear more from our experts, why not attend Raising the Bar 2017, which will see some of our academics give 20 talks in 10 bars across Sydney, all on one night, Wednesday the 25th of October. To register for your free ticket, head to raisingthebarsydney.com.au. Enjoy the podcast. I'm uh, Luigi Tombad. I'm the director of the China Studies Centre, one of the organisers of tonight's activity. Uh, so tonight's is organised by uh, Sydney Ideas and the China Studies Centre in collaboration, and it's a clearly a topic that attracts a lot of people and has a lot of attention and a lot of interest. So I'm looking forward to both the, the presentations and the discussion that will follow. Um, so uh, July 1st, 1997, it was more than 20 years ago, and uh, it was the time when Hong Kong returned to the sovereignty of the People's Republic of China after having been under the British rule for a long time. 20 years have passed, and it is uh, time for us to take stock, to start considering all the things that have happened in the meantime, and the things that are happening at the moment are probably one of the reasons uh, why you're here tonight. So we have uh, assembled a very, a very good panel tonight, and we have three speakers speaking from very different perspectives on the experience of Hong Kong. And I'll introduce them uh, briefly um, here at the table. So uh, Joyce Snip. Uh, who will speak first? Joy, well, uh, you, you just enjoy. And, uh, and she's here uh, in the University of Sydney in the uh, Media uh, Studies. And she's a lecturer in Chinese and Media Studies. And I will introduce her in a moment. After her, Kevin Carrico, who's from Macquarie University, and will speak after her. And last but not least, uh, will be Professor Bin Lin, who's a professor of Chinese law here at the uh, Sydney Law School. So Joyce will be the first, and I will ask her to come in a moment. Joyce is a senior, senior lecturer in Chinese Media Studies here at the University of Sydney. And before coming to Australia in 2010, she worked for more than 20 years in journalism. So she's been a journalist for more than 20 years. And she researched and practiced as assistant professor in journalism, mainly in Hong Kong. So her experience will be very valuable tonight. So Joyce's research focuses on uh, media in Chinese societies, recently uh, the political and social implication of the internet and social media. She's also a member of the editorial board of Journalism Practice and Digital Journalism. So uh, I will ask her to talk first. Please, Joyce. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Well, I need to clarify that I haven't been for working as a journalist for 20 years, but I worked for journalism for a number of years, but I also taught journalism in Hong Kong before I came over here, and together it was over 20 years indeed. Um, thank you very much, Luigi, for giving me the opportunity to share with you on this occasion of 20th anniversary of Hong Kong's return to China. Um, I shall be talking about dissenting media in Hong Kong after 1997. As someone who was born and grew up in Hong Kong and spent most of my time there and have lived through the transition period, um, what Hong Kong has experienced certainly formed a major part of me. 
Um, what I shall be talking about is to give you some material to pave the way for the discussion that comes afterwards. Uh, I shall focus on some several major changes, primarily in the political aspect, and then see how they serve as stimulus for the development of dissenting media in Hong Kong. I would also give you an example to show how dissenting media differ from the mainstream media in its coverage. But first of all, I have to define what I mean by dissenting media. Instead of just focusing on alternative media run by social media, social movement organizations or activists, um, I would also include some sector of the mainstream media which has been described as rebellious, as dissenting media, and also some of the more uh, newly emerged independent media online. This is because some of these other media have taken political positions which differ from the officially sanctioned or approved political positions expected of Hong Kong, and therefore, in that sense, they share um, a kind of vision for what Hong Kong should be in terms of freedom and democracy, which are the major issues that has marked um, Hong Kong from China and has created a lot of tension between the two places. The factors that have affected the uh, development of dissenting media, uh, I have identified three sets of them. One is political and economic, um, but under these changes, the mainstream media have exercised a lot of self-censorship uh, that also in itself forms a context for the development of dissenting media and the development of information and communication technologies have, made, uh, have served as facilitation to the development of dissenting media. Whereas for the political positions of the dissenting media, I can identify two main sources. One is the Chinese intellectual quest, which have, were really started in late 19th century for the path of modernity for China. Different people have come up with different answers, but well, the Chinese Communist Party have come up with their own answer, but there have been other intellectuals who come up with different answers. And that intellectual quest is still continuing, and I see as continuation of that quest among some of the people who run the dissenting media, which explains why there is quite a strong intellectual orientation in some of the things that they do. And the second major source of inference was the British liberal tradition being uh, that influenced Hong Kong as a former British colony. So in its uh, advocation for multi-party democracy, for example. So developments after 1997. I identified three major political events. Um, the first of it was what happened in 2002 when the government proposed to localize Article 23 of the Basic Law, which was the national security legislation, and it aroused huge concern among a large number of people and resulted in what was described as the largest indigenous protest movement in Hong Kong. Some people put the number of protesters that marched on the 1st of July 2003 as 500,000. Um, the year following came further concern about the freedom of speech and expression as some critical radio hosts had their programs suspended or were fired from their positions because the uh, attempt to localize the national security bill was seen as an attempt to narrow down the freedom of speech. So that, um, in that event in 2003, 
Chapel Daily, which was a prominent example of what I describe as rebellious mainstream media, played a role in mobilizing people to participate in the 2003 protests. There were also online web forums, which at that time have appeared and have become spaces for people to discuss issues, including the Golden Forum, Discuss, and You Want web forums. But after 2004, after what happened to the radio hosts, uh, a wave of political internet radio stations came into being. These that are listed here are only some examples of them. Some of them, well, most of them have closed. And most of them used the internet technology, except one citizen radio, which tried to use the more widely available microwave broadcasting technology, but has suffered from uh, government seizures of equipment and a arrest from time to time, but they still try to continue broadcasting. This is the headline of the Apple Daily on the 1st of July, on that day of huge march. You can see that it deviated from the usual impartial or objective position of mainstream journalism. It actually took an advocacy position to ask the people to take to the streets and to protest against Tong Chiwa and we won't disperse without seeing you. What happened afterwards um, was the emergence of 205 of an in-media, in uh, independent media platform, which has played an important role in a number of issues related to cultural heritage protection, including the protection of the Star Ferry Pier in 2006, and the protection of the Queen's Ferry Pier in 2007, which culminated and developed into uh, 2009 and 10, a campaign against the demolition of a village to make way for the construction of a high-speed rail link between Hong Kong and China. And in that process, an organization called Land Justice League was formed, which resonated well with Hong Kong people because it focused on democratic participation in the use of land and urban planning and infrastructural development in a place where the value of real estate is really high. People can understand what democracy means. Um, so there were other um, independent media, dissenting media that happened, uh, that emerged around that time that used audiovisual means and uh, images to express, also focus on issues of uh, land use and consequences of urban development, including the V-Artivist and SOLREC in 2011. The second major change that came was in 2011, when the government tried to introduce the moral and national education curriculum, which again caused a lot of concern because people thought it would be brainwashing the children in schools and it caused another huge protest in the formation of a political group by students called Scholarism, the leader of whom Joshua Wong was later to become a leader of the umbrella protest in 2014. And in that period of time, a wave of further uh, dissenting media appeared. In anticipation of a decision by the Chinese government in 2014 about the future political development of Hong Kong. In 2013, the Occupy Central campaign was uh, planned. And it was also the same year when a very um, popular Hong Kong television network failed to get an application 
for a free-to-air license. And again, it was seen as the government's clampdown on freedom of uh, information. And in response, there have been satirical, um, popular uh, dissenting media like The 100 Most, which was a magazine which later started operating a popular online web TV station called TV Most in 2015. And then there were other um, media that came around that time, including some that focused specifically on specific interests of particular social sector, like the workers' news. So 2014 was the time when uh, China announced the decision about the method of selecting the chief executive for the future of Hong Kong. And I think some of you might know it led to uh, a big protest in 2014 called the Umbrella Protest. And around that period of time, there was a wave of new online media that came in as well in 2014 and 2015. And afterwards, um, new political parties were formed and some of them were described as localist, but in fact there is various uh, positions within the so-called localism, which I won't deal with uh, here. And what happened afterwards, more recently, is uh, this so-called localist legislative council, uh, council members have been disqualified uh, because they were seen as disrespectful when they swear in to take their position uh, as legislative council members. And subsequently, some activists in um, campaigning against certain infrastructural urban development projects have been arrested and put into jail. And last week, uh, three of the leaders of the umbrella movement were put into jail as well. So along with that, there have been a wave of um, independent media that have emerged online. So now I'll show you a case to compare how mainstream media and dissenting media look differently in the reporting about that the jail of this umbrella protest leaders did happen um, on August the 17th last week. So this is from the South China Morning Post. The headline focused on the ending of the political career of these three leaders because by being put into jail, they would not be able to run for political office in the next five years. This is from the Oriental Daily, which arguably is the most popular newspaper in Hong Kong. And it focuses on giving the voice to the judge, saying that these young people were self-righteous and a wrong social conduct is spreading. So these other headlines give you a sense of the language that they use and the focus that they put in. Lies incite illegal behaviors. Trill, have no repentance. Supporters madly bang prison ban. This one is from another newspaper focusing on the illegal behavior of the young people. In contrast, sorry, the 100 Most, which operates the TV Most as well, they interview one of the three and his mother the night before the sentence because they were expecting him to go to prison. So this is called the reunion tonight. I believe I don't have time to show you a clip, but I was intending to show you in which the mother was saying that when these kids were young, he came with them from China to Hong Kong, thinking that Hong Kong is a free place. But now she thinks that, in fact, Hong Kong is worse than China because during the Mao Zedong era, China uses the gun to get, win the regime. But now in Hong Kong, they use the judiciary system to suppress the voice of young people, whereas these young people do not even work for their own self-interest, but for the public good. 
So this gives you an idea of the kind of perspective put forth by this descending media, and it got one million views. This is another um, so red channel. They use mainly photographs and video. And this is a report they made on Friday, the day afterwards, outside the reception center of the three. You can see that um, they highlight the voice of the protesters and they consider them prisoners of conscience. Civic Square belongs to citizens. This is one of the media that is considered localist, but in fact taking a rightist position, run by Civic Passion. This is a newspaper and website called Passion Times. So this uses a kind of language that simplifies things, but sort of saying the attorney general whose face appears on the left, no, on the right bottom corner, his heart has turned red, okay? So this is the news in the past week that shows that Hong Kong is turning red. But in its reports, actually it's quite even-handed because it gives voices to the Attorney General himself as well as other people who support the court's decision, but also other voices that queries the court's judgment. This gives an idea of the arguments that are put forth uh, the lady who is cited here was a prominent publisher, also a barrister, and she is saying that the judgment uses language that is not proper court language. Because one of the perspectives that has been brought up after the court ruling is that it was politically motivated. This is from the Apple Daily, and as usual, it is advocacy. Take to the streets today to support the prisoners of conscience. So this was another rally that was held on Sunday, last Sunday, to support these people. So just to conclude, give you some examples of how this dissenting media might have made an impact on political changes. Um, Joshua Wong himself said he became interested in social issues when he came across information about the anti-high-speed rail link movement on social media. So that was what I mentioned in 2009 and 10. And he wrote that since 2010, he spent one and a half hours every day to read news and editorials and then publish short commentaries, discuss and even debate with others on Facebook. So the use of social media to interact with other people, not just obtain information, but to hear the opinion of others and to talk things through has become, has made an impact on him. Attitude was one of the editors of In Media that appeared in 2005, I mentioned earlier, who occupied the Star Ferry Pier. So In Media is not just another media that reports about things, they also took part in the social action. Um, and afterwards, he mobilized participants of a citizen reporter workshop organized by In Media Hong Kong to report stories about the high-speed rail link. So we can see a continuation of influence of In Media in participating in these issues. And a supporter of Passion Times said he listened to five hours of his web radio every day and then become converted to it and then don't use any other media. So people can become very dedicated and just buy into some perspective. And the organizer of the Passion Times also agreed that it was the main channel through which they recruit supporters to their group. So I've given you a simple overview of the political changes and how it has stimulated waves of appearance of descending media and given you an example of how they differ from each other. Thank you.
Thanks, Joyce. As, uh, as, as I forgot to say at the beginning, we're trying to um, have every speaker speak for about 15 to 20 minutes and then keep a little bit of time for us to have a discussion towards the end. So the second speaker will be uh, Kevin Carrico. Dr. Kevin Carrico was a lecturer in Chinese studies at Macquarie University and is, uh, among other things, is the author of a book called The Great Han, Race, Nationalism and Tradition in China Today, which is uh, one of the things he specializes on. But he's currently conducting, Kevin is an anthropologist, he's currently conducting an ethnographic studies of Hong Kong localism and nationalism. So, Kevin, please, to you. Thanks for the uh, introduction and uh, thanks for the uh, uh, China Studies Center for uh, organizing this event on this very important topic. I hope I'm not feeding back too much there. Now, um, I'm currently researching the rise of the uh, Hong Kong independence movement, which has made independence advocacy uh, increasingly mainstream in Hong Kong uh, politics uh, over the past uh, seven years or so. Looking at uh, public opinion polling in recent years, we can see ever higher levels of local self-identification with the label uh, Hong Konger uh, being twice as popular as Chinese at this point. There are also broader political implications for this identity shift. One in six people polled in 2016 by the University of Hong Kong's public opinion program supports the idea of Hong Kong independence, while nearly 40% of young people support this idea. There has thus been a, a massive shift in which a once completely 100% taboo idea, this was really not something that people were talking about in 1997 or even for that matter in 2007, has gradually made its way into uh, mainstream political discourse and is even uh, widely accepted among certain age groups, uh, particularly young people. How did this happen? That's uh, the question I'm pursuing today. Now we should remember that One Country, Two Systems in Hong Kong was intended to provide a model for Taiwan's eventual integration into the PRC. But nowadays, after 20 years in the PRC, uh, ever more people in Hong Kong are actually showing a greater interest in the Taiwan model of a democratic nation independent from the People's Republic. What does this mean for Hong Kong's future? Speaking with colleagues, uh, one of the most common responses I hear about the Hong Kong independence movement is that it is unnecessarily provocative and will only produce a crackdown from Beijing. And I don't necessarily disagree, okay? But I think that's only one part of the story. And in this presentation, I aim to better contextualize this unprecedented shift in opinion, wherein, ironically, uh, since Hong Kong's integration into China, ever fewer residents of the city identify as Chinese. Again, how did this happen and what are the implications for the future? Thinking through these trends, I've uh, begun to trace a cycle of uh, policies and counter-reactions that I call a non-compliance cycle. This is a term uh, borrowed from G. G. William Skinner and Edwin Winkler, who, when writing about the cycle of campaigns in rural areas under Mao in the 1950s and 1960s, coined the term compliance cycle to refer 
to the alternating sequences of policy radicalization and moderation in the countryside in the first two decades of the People's Republic. Now, uh, I could spend far more than 15 minutes uh, summarizing this argument. Uh, I'll try to make it brief. Uh, Skinner and Winkler saw shortcomings produced by top-down radicalism. So, for example, the Great Leap Forward, leading to policy relaxation. Uh, for example, the post-Leap era of the early 1960s, where there were more sort of moderate uh, economic policies. And then, in turn, uh, the confidence generated in these eras of normalcy in turn leading the state to push for radicalism again, as seen, for example, in the Cultural Revolution, thus beginning the process all over. Now I'd like to build upon this theory uh, to suggest that Hong Kong is also trapped in a self-reproducing power cycle in its relationship with Beijing, wherein neither side backs down and the two sides are, in fact, pulled ever further apart. Increasingly radical measures from Beijing intended to promote stability and artificial sameness and political control on a post-Tiananmen model uh, in a fundamentally incom incompatible sociopolitical context are producing increasingly radical responses from Hong Kong society, emphasizing difference and rejecting control, which in turn then generate ever more radical responses from Beijing. The result, I argue, uh, as suggested by the title of my paper here, is a fundamentally destabilizing push for stability that is actually disconcertingly reminiscent of patterns seen in other PRC autonomous regions, a prospect that, to say the least, does not bode well for the future of Hong Kong. So how has this non-compliance cycle evolved? I propose here uh, four steps which I will discuss in turn, uh, difference, denial, uh, radicalization, and crackdown. After a few uh, largely peaceful honeymoon years after 1997, in which the difference between Hong Kong and PRC societies was acknowledged and somewhat respected under the rubric of one country, two systems, the uh, 2003 push to implement national security legislation under Article 23 of the Basic Law was the catalyst that began the cycle of protests and clampdowns in which we find ourselves today. National security is, of course, understandable, necessary, um, yet it's also necessary to understand the anxiety that many people in Hong Kong felt at this time, particularly as a result of the very, very political interpretation of such concepts as subversion, state secrets, and so-called illegal organizations, uh, terms that were included in the national, national security legislation and terms that are uh, commonly abused in the PRC legal system today. National security uh, from a Beijing perspective, in short, uh, is regime security that doesn't actually abide by actual laws, but rather elevates the party above the law for the sole purpose of self-preservation in the name of the law. Therefore, subjecting Hong Kong to a law in which the CCP is above the law is actually fundamentally incompatible with Hong Kong's long-standing rule of law-based traditions of an independent judiciary protecting freedom of the press, speech, and assembly. Accordingly, after a half a million or more uh, people came out in protest against this legislation on July 1st, 2003, 
the sixth anniversary of the handover, Beijing and its supporters uh, stepped back from this national security law. The Article uh, 23 controversy generated heightened sensitivity to differences between the Hong Kong and PRC legal and social systems. This difference, however, was in turn denied uh, the second step in the cycle in the National Education Program, which uh, became a controversy in 2011, 2012, 2013, but was actually first uh, dreamed up uh, in late 2003 in the immediate aftermath of the Article 23 controversy, um, leading to the establishment of a National Education Center in Taipo in uh, 2007, where I actually uh, spent some time conducting uh, fieldwork uh, back in 2009. Now, there is, of course, a precedent in recent Chinese history for putting in place a nationalist education program in the aftermath of large-scale protests. The patriotic education campaign in China uh, was launched in the aftermath of massive protests and state violence in 1989. And just as the patriotic education program aims to naturalize an official nationalist worldview, so national education in Hong Kong aimed to naturalize a great unity with Hong Kong as a happy part of the PRC. Now, as is often the case, uh, Beijing and its supporters went a bit too far in uh, pushing national education. Um, one representative uh, publicly chastised more liberal-minded residents as bananas, um, meaning that they were, in his opinion, yellow on the outside but white on the inside, and thus anomalous and problematic. Um, and also uh, casting the CCP uh, in the words of the national education textbook, The China Model, as engaged in progressive and selfless service to the nation and the people. Such messaging uh, showed a real lack of awareness, I think, of one's audience, a constant issue in Beijing-Hong Kong communications. One can, of course, make these type of claims when competing critical voices in society are forcefully silenced, but it's really not uh, practical to promote such unrealistic ideas in Hong Kong. These types of blunders uh, in the national education program and the push to expand the program further in 2011 and 2012 led to a growing protest movement uh, pushing back against this assimilationist education framework. Eventually, this program was set aside as well. Yet the protest movement that grew in response to national education in 2012 eventually played an essential role in the launch of the uh, Occupy protests in 2014. Here, uh, we see an example of the third step in this process. Protesters taking ever more radical moves in response to the denial of the very real differences that are felt in the previous two steps in the cycle. And this growing radicalization leads to increasingly radical counter responses and crackdowns from Beijing and its supporters in Hong Kong. The fourth step, uh, which continues to this day in Hong Kong, as we can see um, since uh, about 2012, with the mobilization of uh, patriotic protest groups like uh, Caring Hong Kong, the Oathgate uh, removal of uh, directly elected legislators this past year, and just in the past week, the sentencing of 16 protesters to prison. 
Such developments suggest that this cycle that I'm trying to analyze here is now essentially directly impacting all of the city's social, legal, and political institutions, a shift in my analysis that doesn't bode well for mending ties, for mending divides, and promoting unity. Now, uh, in this brief summary of the tumultuous past decade and a half from Article 23 to Occupy to the ongoing crackdown, I've tried to very generally map out this idea of a non-compliance cycle that's producing ever greater anxiety in both Beijing and Hong Kong, okay? And I can see it over the broad sweep of history, you know, from 2002 until now. But we can also see other sort of smaller manifestations of this cycle, okay? I've seen how attempts to exert control over higher education institutions in Hong Kong uh, have, for example, created blowback, driving student unions uh, such as the uh, Hong Kong Undergraduate uh, Student Union to be increasingly outspoken and even radical in their uh, opinions of PRC policy and uh, Hong Kong local government policy, which of course makes Beijing and its supporters ever more anxious and ever more eager to exert control over the universities. If we even just zoom in on the controversy over political reform, the reform package uh, put forward in 2014, okay, realistically, it probably could have been happily accepted in 1997. But there was, throughout the early 2000s, this constant delaying in expanding universal suffrage that occurred in 2004 and then again in 2007. And then it pushed people to have ever greater demands and ever greater expectations which then led to the rejection of the 2014 proposal, which has in turn left uh, Hong Kong's political reform in essentially a, a stalemate. The resistance uh, that Beijing has faced in its, um, I believe, misguided efforts to exercise control over Hong Kong has then unfortunately made it only ever more determined to exercise that control. So it's this uh, transplant of PRC post-89 politics, state security, patriotic education, stability maintenance, essentially an overwhelming emphasis upon control uh, into a completely incompatible context that I argue has produced the Hong Kong independence movement, uh, which is an unprecedented development. As I uh, mentioned at the start of this presentation, it's uh, very easy to criticize independence activists, but at the end of the day, doing so only tells you half the story. The independence movement that Beijing is now using as a pretext for a crackdown is in fact the direct product of Beijing's already increasingly tight restrictions on the territory over the past decade and a half and a resulting lack of confidence that real democracy and maintenance of the local way of life could be achieved within the PRC. Seeing a process in which Beijing is continually shifting its red line to exert ever greater control, the independence movement makes a dramatic leap over the reddest of red lines. Uh, they very much understand the cycle of provocation and counter-provocation and are uh, finding their agency within this usually disempowering process. But I should add that even the most uh, diehard uh, Hong Kong independence activists uh, who I know 
tell me that their final goal is, at the end of the day, simply democracy. Their difference from the more conventional pan-democrats with which uh, we're all familiar is that they see no pathway to real democracy under Beijing control. Uh, is this a realistic ass assessment? I, I think so. They are then, in my opinion, realists uh, to a degree, albeit with a not particularly realistic solution to the dilemma that they have analyzed very realistically. Nowadays, uh, one academic and policy paper after another uh, coming out of China is looking into trying to analyze and trace this Hong Kong independence movement. Uh, there was recently an article in the uh, Journal of uh, Hong Kong Macau Affairs that tried to engage in psychoanalysis to figure out the roots of uh, Hong Kong's uh, localist movement. Okay? Um, I've taken the time to read quite a few of these, uh, yet, these, yet uh, I found that these so-called new ideas put forward to combat this trend include, for example, making independence advocacy illegal under Article 23, or maybe pushing national education so that all students know from a young age that they're Chinese. I, I suppose I could ask everybody, do these sound familiar? Article 23, uh, national education? These solutions were already tried in the 2000s, and they became problems that generated the backlash we see today. Continuing this non-compliance cycle without, uh, I think, understanding the uh, provocation and counter-provocation that's involved in it, the PRC is seeking solutions to problems precisely in the original sources of the problems. Such proposed solutions suggest a deep misunderstanding of the self-reproducing cycle in which Beijing and Hong Kong find themselves today, and out of which uh, there increasingly appears to be uh, no easy exit. So, thanks everybody. Thanks, Kevin. Um, the third speaker, Professor Bin Ling. Uh, Bin Ling is a professor of Chinese law and is currently the Associate Dean International here at the Sydney uh, Law School and uh, Associate Director of China of the Center for Asia and the Pacific Law. Uh, he was also, uh, importantly for tonight, uh, a founding professor of the law faculty of the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Uh, and taught in Hong Kong for nearly 30, 20 years, so again, uh, an experience we need to hear tonight. He has sat in the Constitutional Affairs Committee of the Law Society of Hong Kong and has, of course, written extensively on constitutional developments in Hong Kong. So, uh, Bean, please. Thank you, Luigi. It's an honor to be here. Uh, my uh, presentation uh, is entitled uh, uh, Rule of Law in Hong Kong Under Siege, uh, Beijing's Interpretation of the Basic Law Since 1997. Uh, I guess it's now uh, almost a foregone conclusion that the rule of law in Hong Kong is under siege. Uh, and it is so uh, for a variety of reasons. There are political, social, ideological forces uh, that are putting pressure on Hong Kong's rule of law. 
what I would argue uh, in this presentation uh, is that the uh, system for the interpretation of the basic law by Beijing uh, is uh, probably one of the uh, fundamental constitutional uh, structural causes uh, for uh, the uh, uh, for the difficulty that the Hong Kong rule of law uh, is in uh, right now. Now here uh, by uh, Beijing, uh, I mean the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress, the national legislature uh, in China, uh, which has the authority to interpret uh, the basic law. Uh, it, it is uh, common knowledge that uh, 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 rule of law, judicial independence, is one of the things that truly distinguishes Hong Kong from the rest of China. Uh, it is at the core of the success story uh, of Hong Kong. Uh, to maintain rule of law and judicial independence uh, is also uh, one of the cornerstones underpinning the one country, two systems uh, policy. Uh, the basic law itself uh, has uh, several uh, provisions that provide for the preservation of the common law tradition uh, in Hong Kong after 1997. Uh, it provides for the independent judicial power and the power of final adjudication uh, in Hong Kong uh, after 1997. Now, it should be pointed out that under the basic law, the Hong Kong legal system is not completely insulated uh, from the rest of China. Uh, there are a number of uh, points of interface, uh, a number of avenues through which uh, Hong Kong's legal system uh, can be uh, influenced uh, uh, by the political and legal forces uh, in uh, mainland China. And uh, uh, the basic law itself provides for uh, several uh, possibilities. Uh, the first is in Article 17 of the Basic Law, which provides for Beijing's power to veto Hong Kong's legislation uh, if it should find that a piece of Hong Kong legislation uh, uh, contravenes certain provisions of the Basic Law. Now, thankfully, that power has never been exercised in the past 20 years. Uh, secondly, the Basic Law in Article 18 provides for uh, the application of mainland law in Hong Kong uh, by uh, including the law, the mainland law, in Annex 3 uh, to the Basic Law. Now, that has been done on numerous occasions, uh, but so far that practice has remained largely uncontroversial. Uh, the laws that apply to Hong Kong are limited to those laws relating to foreign affairs, uh, national defense, and sovereignty. Uh, uh, thirdly, uh, the basic law also provides for a, uh, uh, a uh, uh, provides for foreign affairs power uh, of the central government uh, through uh, the authority in regulating foreign affairs of Hong Kong. Uh, mainland China uh, could introduce laws and policies uh, that would uh, uh, be applicable uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, the 2011 Congo case, uh, which I'll refer to in a moment, uh, is a good example. Uh, fourthly, uh, the basic law provides for the amendment uh, of the basic law. The basic law itself can be amended by Chinese uh, legislature. Uh, subject to certain uh, limitations. Uh, again, that power has not been exercised since 1997. 
finally, uh, and this is the topic that I want to focus on, uh, the basic law provides for Beijing's power to interpret uh, the basic law. Now, the provision for that is Article 158. That article, uh, which happens to be the, uh, a lengthy and uh, the most complex uh, provision in the basic law, that provision uh, was uh, adopted, it was drafted after a protracted uh, a, a series, a, a protracted process of, of negotiation. Uh, the drafters of the basic law uh, from mainland China and from Hong Kong uh, during the that the drafting process uh, struggled uh, very hard to maintain a balance between the power of the central government and the autonomy of Hong Kong. Uh, Article 158 is complex. Uh, I will just summarize the provision in, uh, in, in those three points. First of all, Article 158 says that Beijing, the National People's Congress Standing Committee, has the power to interpret the basic law. Uh, it doesn't say whether that power is subject to any limit. Uh, it just uh, reaffirms the power of the Chinese legislature uh, to interpret the basic law. And Chinese legislature does have that power under China's constitution to interpret national statutes. Secondly, the provision uh, authorizes Hong Kong courts to interpret the basic law. Uh, this clearly resonates with the common law tradition in Hong Kong, uh, whereby it is the courts uh, in adjudicating cases that have the authority to interpret statutes, including the basic law. Uh, Hong Kong courts are authorized uh, to interpret all the provisions of the basic law. Uh, thirdly, uh, the uh, the article uh, provides for a process of judicial reference. In regard to certain provisions, which the Court of Final Appeal of Hong Kong would call excluded provisions, in regard to those so-called excluded provisions, these are provisions dealing with the responsibility of central government and the relationship between central and the regional uh, uh, governments. Uh, in regard to these provisions, uh, Hong Kong's uh, Court of Final Appeal uh, is required to seek interpretation from Beijing before it can decide a case that raises the question of interpretation. So you have a procedure for judicial reference that is uh, laid down in that provision uh, as well. Now, in the past 20 years, uh, the basic law has been interpreted uh, by Beijing five times. Uh, there have been five interpretations uh, of the basic law. I will go through them very quickly here. The first interpretation happened in 1999. This is the, uh, this is the infamous uh, uh, right of abode case, uh, which uh, was sent uh, to Beijing uh, by the Hong Kong uh, government uh, under uh, Chief Executive Tong Chi Hua, and the uh, Chinese legislature uh, interpreted the provisions on uh, right of abode in Hong Kong and in effect overruled a landmark judgment given by the Court of Final Appeal uh, in the Ng Ka Ling uh, uh, case. Uh, that 
uh, case uh, triggered a, a tremendous uh, uproar in Hong Kong's legal profession. Uh, there were uh, large-scale protests against uh, uh, the conduct of the government and, and, and Beijing. Uh, the Court of Final Appeal, however, uh, in the end, uh, confirmed and accepted uh, the interpretation from Beijing uh, as valid and as binding. So that was the first uh, interpretation. Uh, the second interpretation, the second interpretation uh, occurred in 2004. Uh, this uh, interpretation is about the provisions in the basic law dealing with post-2007 political election uh, in Hong Kong. It was less uh, controversial, it was less pernicious uh, to the Hong Kong legal system than the first one. Uh, this interpretation uh, from the record appears to be initiated uh, not by Hong Kong, but by uh, a group in the Chinese legislature itself, by the chairman's meeting in the Chinese legislature. So, so we have here a first instance of interpretation which was initiated by Beijing itself. The third interpretation happened the next year in the wake of Tong Chi Wa's sudden resignation from the office of the chief executive. The third interpretation uh, dealt with certain uh, provisions of the basic law on the term of office of the new chief executive. Uh, this interpretation, again, it was not that controversial. It was initiated this time again by Hong Kong government uh, through the state council and that uh, uh, deals with certain technical uh, matters uh, uh, concerning the office of the chief executive. The fourth interpretation happened in 2011. This was the first judicial reference by Hong Kong's Court of Final Appeal uh, to the uh, Beijing legislature uh, for an interpretation. Uh, the interpretation arose in uh, the so-called Congo case, which is a case in Hong Kong courts that uh, raises questions of sovereign immunity uh, as a matter of Hong Kong law. Uh, the court final appeal, the majority of the court, found that in order to decide that case, it was necessary to interpret certain excluded provisions of the basic law, and therefore it is necessary to refer the case to Beijing. Uh, uh, now, uh, what is... Uh, so this is the first uh, CFA, the Court of Final Appeal, initiated case of interpretation. Now what is interesting about that uh, interpretation is that the court, uh, after, uh, the, uh, after going through the hearing on the matter, uh, the court issued a provisional judgment which sets out its own interpretation of the basic law. And then it says that the judgment is subject to the interpretation of Beijing. And Beijing, in its interpretation, largely confirms the court's provisional judgment. So in other words, uh, in the end, uh, Beijing uh, was in general agreement uh, with the Court of Final Appeal on the interpretation of the basic law. That is the fourth interpretation. The fifth interpretation happened only several months ago. This happened uh, in November uh, 2016. Uh, again, this time, the interpretation was initiated by Beijing itself. It was clear that Hong Kong government or Hong Kong court did not ask for it. Uh, Beijing by itself initiated the interpretation of a provision in the basic law concerning oath-taking of 
uh, officials and legislators. It was clear that Beijing was intending to have this interpretation uh, to strip uh, the, uh, the, the office of, uh, uh, in the Legislative Council by certain uh, pro-independence and pro-democracy uh, uh, members. Uh, now this interpretation was unusual, and in a way it was probably more harmful, it was more pernicious to Hong Kong's legal uh, order than even the first uh, uh, right of abode interpretation, in that this interpretation was issued at a time when the same question was being litigated in a case before Hong Kong's court of first instance. Uh, so there were a lot of criticisms about not only uh, this uh, interpretation uh, intending to uh, uh, influence uh, the, uh, uh, the intending to interfere with Hong Kong's judicial independence, but also interfering with the decision of that particular uh, case. So these are the five instances of interpretation of the basic law. Uh, a number of questions uh, have been uh, uh, raised in these uh, instances of interpretation. Uh, many of them uh, do not have answers in the basic law itself. Uh, answers have emerged in practice uh, to these questions, and it is uh, important for us to uh, go through these questions and assess uh, their uh, uh, impact. Uh, first of all, who really has the power to initiate the process of interpretation? Now, that the basic law only mentions the court of final appeal that has the power. In practice, it is now clear that uh, uh, the Hong Kong government uh, can ask for an interpretation through the state council. Uh, Beijing itself, through the legislature itself, through the chairman's meeting, uh, can ask for interpretation. In fact, it has been suggested that anybody uh, can uh, make a proposal, make a suggestion uh, for the interpretation of basic law. Ultimately, uh, the legislature in Beijing, the government in Beijing, the State Council, and the government in Hong Kong seem to have unlimited power to uh, uh, have interpretation of the basic law. Uh, secondly, uh, is there any limit uh, on the power uh, of interpretation by the uh, MPC Standing Committee? Uh, I wrote an article 10 years ago in which I, well, I was the only uh, uh, one in Hong Kong who argued that the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress power of interpretation uh, is limited or should be limited to those excluded provisions. In other words, to those matters that are beyond Hong Kong's autonomy. Uh, that contention was based on a review of the legislative history uh, of the Hong Kong Basic Law and based on the practice uh, of interpretation uh, in China. That, that uh, argument, however, was, uh, was contrary uh, to the position of Hong Kong's Court of Final Appeal. The Court of Final Appeal of Hong Kong in a number of decisions have said that uh, uh, the Beijing legislature uh, has quote-unquote, plenary power uh, to interpret the basic law. By that, the court means that Beijing's power to interpret the basic law covers every provision of the basic law, including those provisions uh, that are within uh, the autonomy of Hong Kong. Now, I, I, I strongly disagree with that, of course. Uh, now, if there is anything that is encouraging from the handling of Hong Kong from, from Chinese uh, legislature, 
on this matter, it is that in practice so far, in the five instances of interpretation so far, it seems that every time Beijing does the interpretation, it will first say that the matter is not within Hong Kong's autonomy. It is a matter for the central government to decide. So in other words, it seems that Beijing uh, has uh, uh, limited itself, at least uh, uh, rhetorically, has limited itself uh, to those provisions of the basic law that are outside Hong Kong's autonomy. Now, you may disagree with Beijing on whether a particular matter is indeed outside Hong Kong's economy, uh, autonomy. I guess uh, we can uh, uh, disagree uh, with Beijing over that. But it is, I think, encouraging that Beijing so far, including the very latest uh, interpretation, is saying that we are only interpreting the basic law that are without Hong Kong's autonomy. Uh, uh, what is the... Uh, 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 now, the excluded provisions uh, are those provisions that are outside Hong Kong's autonomy. The interpretation of the excluded provisions must go to Beijing. Who is going to decide what provision is an excluded provision or not? Now, on that question, Hong Kong's Court of Final Appeal and, and Beijing have a, a, a different view. Obviously, Hong Kong's court says it should be the Hong Kong court to decide that, and Beijing says ultimately it is the national legislature that determines what is an excluded uh, provision. Uh, what law should uh, govern uh, interpretation of the basic law. The basic law is the national law of China. Uh, the Hong Kong's uh, Court of Final ap Appeal in a 2001 case, in the case of, uh, uh, in, in the 2001 uh, uh, case, uh, held that Hong Kong courts will apply common law, the law of Hong Kong, in the interpretation of the basic law. That clearly was inconsistent uh, with Beijing's understanding on the issue. The practice of Beijing clearly is that Beijing is going to apply mainland Chinese law in the interpretation of the basic law. Uh, finally, when we look at the five instances of interpretation by Beijing of the basic law, it appears that the methodology for the interpretation of the basic law is far from clear and consistent. Sometimes Beijing will look to the natural language, the natural meaning of the words of the text. Sometimes they will look at legislative history. Sometimes uh, they will invoke certain uh, doctrines or certain principles uh, of Chinese law in general. Uh, it is far from clear what is the methodology for the interpretation of the basic law uh, of Beijing. Uh, there have been certain proposals for reform uh, in recent years. Uh, these uh, reform proposals have been discussed uh, in Beijing among Chinese scholars and academics. Uh, from my own point of view, I think uh, it is uh, quite obvious that uh, the procedure for the interpretation of the basic law has uh, a great deal uh, uh, of the scope uh, for improvement. Uh, there are at least three aspects uh, in which the interpretation of the basic law can be improved. Now here, I'm not really suggesting anything radical or revolutionary. What I'm suggesting here are everything that is already in Chinese law. First of all, uh, the, uh, there is a need to increase the transparency and openness of the process of interpretation. 
Right now, uh, when the interpretation is prepared, it is prepared by the draftsman's division in the legislature. Uh, it will be kept secret. It is not made available to the public. The public will only know about the text of the interpretation after it is adopted by the legislature. Now, that needs to be changed. China nowadays, in making its own laws, uh, will typically publish its draft and solicit public comments. That process, which applies to China's own lawmaking, should apply to the interpretation of the basic law. Public hearings, if possible, if possible, should be held over controversial issues in the interpretation of basic law. Again, that's nothing new. Chinese law itself says that in the making of Chinese law and Chinese regulations, if questions relate to public interest, hearings should be held in public. Again, it is a requirement that is already in the Chinese uh, law. Uh, Finally, uh, the role of the Basic Law Committee, which is an advisory body that consists uh, of six mainland uh, 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 experts and six Hong Kong experts, uh, that the role of that advisory body needs to be strengthened. Currently, the Basic Law says that body needs to be consulted before the Standing Committee makes an interpretation. Uh, well, so far, in the five instances of interpretation that we have seen, the Basic Law Committee plays the role of a rubber stamp. That needs to be changed. Uh, these uh, members of the Basic Law Committee, they should be legal experts. They should be uh, people uh, that can uh, review the matter of interpretation uh, uh, from a legal point of view and, and preferably uh, independently. Uh, and if the role of the, of the Basic Law Committee can be strengthened, again, uh, the uh, interpretation process can be improved. Uh, now, the interpretation of the Basic Law by Beijing has had uh, a significant impact on Hong Kong's rule of law. Uh, the impact so far has generally been negative. Uh, the interpretation system uh, by Beijing of the Hong Kong Basic Law injects an element of uncertainty and it endangers finality in the judicial process uh, in uh, Hong Kong. Uh, because of this, the, the arbitrary uh, nature of the interpretation uh, power and interpretation process because of the lack of control and the lack of legal limitation uh, on that power. Uh, it uh, means, uh, uh, in effect, that any constitutional question, any uh, major uh, political legal question in Hong Kong can potentially be subject to the interpretation uh, by uh, Beijing. And that uh, poses a significant peril to the uh, uh, rule of law uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, the Hong Kong courts have so far taken an ambivalent attitude to the interpretation process. Hong Kong courts have accepted that Beijing's interpretation, whatever it says, however it is made, will be valid and binding on Hong Kong. But uh, in the 2001 uh, Zhuang Yun case, uh, Hong Kong's Court of Final Appeal did the least that it could do. It held that Hong Kong will interpret the basic law uh, on its own according to the common law principles. Uh, 
uh, you, one would hope that the courts of Hong Kong uh, would, uh, uh, would take a, a stronger position uh, on this particular question uh, in regard to the interpretation. Uh, I think the most uh, significant and far-reaching impact of the interpretation of basic law on Hong Kong's rule of law is that it creates a, a threat. Uh, it casts a long shadow uh, over the rule of law in Hong Kong. If, if any major significant case uh, uh, can be submitted to Beijing for its arbitrary interpretation, that uh, is going to have long-lasting negative impact on Hong Kong. A lot needs to be done. Uh, one would hope that Hong Kong's rule of law is stronger than a cat and has more than nine lives. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ben. So we've heard three very different and very stimulating um, presentations tonight, and we still have uh, about 20, 25 minutes to uh, go. So I would like to give to as many uh, to as many people as possible the possibility of asking questions. So I will probably collect uh, three or four before we go back to the panel. Uh, at this point, I will ask you to be as short as possible, brief as possible in asking your questions. So uh, I have a hand up here. Please. Uh, with what's happened in Hong Kong, what are the implications for uh, once China takes over Taiwan? Thanks. Thank you. That's a very large question. Uh, okay, let's get a few more questions, please. Of the, um, I repeat my question. My question to the panel is the, to the, um, were the Signal and China joint declaration in 1984 is part of the constitutional in Hong Kong. If it's uh, part of the constitutional, will it be effective to constrain the power of China when interpreting the law of Hong Kong? Thank you. Um, so my question is, uh, after President Xi Jinping assuming the power, there is a precipitous escalation on both uh, radicalization, as Dr. Caracol mentioned, and uh, crackdown. So do you think this is a more of a natural result of the difference uh, from the very beginning, or is it more linked to his personal governing and uh, diplomatic pattern? Thank you. I just want to ask the professor uh, one question that why do you think the interpretation has to be open instead of like secretive? Um, is that, uh, why do you assume that secretive system didn't work better than open system? Because there's a lot of media discussion in America about um, manipulation of uh, election from Russia because I think it's a system that is too open. That's why it's easier to under attack. So, and also, if you play cards with other people, you don't show you know, what you have, right? So I'm just going to ask <laughs> why. OK. So, so we had the first four questions, a very large question. So I better ask the panel to uh, provide their answer. Joyce, do you want to start? Um, well, I'm not sure that I'm the person to answer these political questions. But maybe on the last question, which touches on the flow of information, whether secrecy is better than transparency, that is an interesting proposition. 
But I guess there is accepted wisdom is that if there is transparency, if something goes wrong, there are forces that can um, counteract it. But it doesn't mean that in all circumstances we need to have information all open uh, because certainly there are situations where national security is involved, where indeed you are in a situation where you think um, you are in a battle with other forces, then you need to keep things transparent. But in the case of interpretation of the basic law, do you think that is the situation that Hong Kong and China are in a battle and therefore China would, should keep things secret from Hong Kong? That relationship, um, at least from the China's perspective, they have always emphasized that Hong Kong is a uh, part of China and China is the motherland although some people in Hong Kong does see China as uh, uh, an enemy that they battle against. Kevin. All right. Um, well, uh, on the question of Taiwan, I, uh, I just... Uh, uh, my own feeling is, uh, just realistically speaking, I, I don't see this happening, you know, the idea of the PRC exercising any type of uh, control over Taiwan. Um, but I can say that the Hong Kong example suggests that if that were to happen, I don't think it would go overly smoothly. Uh, but uh, I don't think it's uh, even a, a slight possibility. Um, as for the uh, question of whether this cycle is sort of a product of the differences between the two societies or uh, a product of uh, Xi Jinping's own uh, quite politically conservative approach to civil society and uh, more aggressive approach to uh, diplomacy. I think it's a, a bit of a combination of both. I mean, this uh, sort of uh, fracturing of the relationship between Hong Kong and uh, Beijing or the mainland uh, started well before Xi's uh, tenure, um, and I think grows out of, uh, you know, despite the rhetoric about uh, national unity and things like that, uh, really grows out of the fundamental fact that, you know, Hong Kong and the PRC have had uh, very different historical experiences over the past century and a half, um, and that the rhetoric of national unity sort of completely ignores uh, much of that and uh, pretends as if Hong Kong just always has been and naturally is uh, part of the PRC. Things are actually much more complicated than that. However, um, <clears throat> as someone who, uh, you know, did research in uh, mainland China and now uh, does research in Hong Kong, I do think that uh, the worsening uh, political situation in uh, China uh, does have uh, very real implications uh, for Hong Kong and uh, makes me perhaps, you know, even more uh, pessimistic about uh, sort of the search for a solution to this conundrum than I would have been even, uh, you know, two or three years ago. Um, and I agree with uh, Joyce's point about the problematic of the uh, card playing uh, metaphor, uh, because yeah, yeah, that uh, you know that suggests from the start uh, opposition, and 
What, uh, what does concern me is that there is kind of this, uh, at least from Beijing um, and from uh, some patriots, sort of this desire to express almost ownership over Hong Kong, uh, a search for pride uh, through that. And that is not, uh, I think, uh, the type of attitude that'll uh, promote reconciliation uh, between the two societies. Uh, yeah, the, uh, first of all, the Taiwan uh, issue, I think the ship has long sailed on that question. The basic law initially, uh, the Hong Kong policy initially uh, was uh, uh, formulated with Taiwan in mind. But so much has changed in, in Taiwan uh, and in Hong Kong. What ha whatever happens in Taiwan, I think will have little impact on China's handling uh, of Hong Kong. On the question of joint uh, declaration, uh, a few months ago, uh, China's foreign ministry spokesperson made, made headline when he says the joint declaration is merely a historical doc document that has no practical significance. Now, I guess any time when the spokesperson himself becomes the subject of the news, it's not, it's not good. In fact, the, uh, the spokesperson's uh, uh, suggestion uh, had major backlash even in China uh, among Chinese academics. It simply defies basic principles of international law of treaties. And in fact, later on, the foreign ministry uh, treaty uh, director uh, tried to uh, uh, walk back from that position and saying, well, it's still a binding treaty. We are saying United Kingdom does not have power to supervise uh, the situation uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, on the question of uh, openness and transparency, in a certain sense, I agree with the contention that the process of interpretation should be a closed one rather than an open one. For the reason that the interpretation process, the process for finding out the meaning of a provision, this is not a question uh, that should be put to a majority vote. It should be a question that is dealt with by experts following, uh, uh, following uh, legal methodology, uh, following a certain uh, legal approach. Uh, but there are a number of uh, uh, things that would, uh, there are a number of countervailing uh, factors uh, on this. First of all, in China, interpretation is never regarded as simply the finding of the meaning of, uh, of a statutory text. Interpretation in China has always been considered as the finding of a solution to a problem. So several interpretations of the basic law, for instance, especially the last one, the very latest one, has been criticized to be not just a interpretation of a provision, but rather making new rules uh, on oath-taking uh, that would apply retroactively uh, to those LegCo uh, members. And the other thing is, even if it's just a matter of experts doing interpretation, trying to find the meaning of a provision, is still uh, serves, it still facilitates the decision-making process when you hear uh, different views. And obviously, uh, in, uh, in a normal legal system, you interpret the statutes by listening to the views of both parties. You will hear adversarial uh, uh, opinions uh, from uh, different parties, and that, I think, is something that should be done. Uh, in 2011, uh, when there was this, uh, this interpretation in the Congo case, I was in the 
Constitutional Affairs Committee of the Hong Kong Law Society. And in that committee, we decided that uh, uh, we should introduce uh, uh, a, an, an opinion, an opinion on the interpretation of the basic law from the Hong Kong Law Society on the question of sovereign immunity, which obviously has important impact for Hong Kong's legal profession and, and commerce. Uh, that idea, uh, however, unfortunately, was shot down by the Council of the Law Society. That was not done. But again, I thought you know, one of the procedural reforms which many Chinese academics have been uh, discussing and exploring uh, should be to open up the process to increase the transparency and to hear different views on the interpretation of law. Thank you. So, uh, very good. You've been very disciplined today with questions and answers. Uh, so I have one person, I think, here, and then I have John, and I've seen one person there. So this one first. I don't know your name, so sorry. So hello. Um, I have a question. It's about um, the media in Hong Kong. So I just want to know that, like, how do you think about the corporate governance in the media um, um, cooperation, how is it involved like um, shaping the media in Hong Kong? Mm. Interesting question. Are you waiting Sorry. for a few other questions? Thank you. Um, how big or small a target will Hong Kong universities be in the next three years? Um, how autonomous can they be in comparison to the China Nine universities? that report direct to the Minister of Education. And if you're Vice-Chancellor of a Hong Kong University, what would be your advice to students? Hi, thank you. Uh, my role is with respect to foreign powers and what, if any, role they've played in the recent developments in Hong Kong, uh, in particular the United Kingdom. Has there been any expression uh, by foreign leaders uh, to Xi Jinping and, and his administration about developments in Hong Kong or has China simply become so powerful that uh, it doesn't need to pay heed to, to what uh, foreign countries think about um, developments in, in Hong Kong with respect to China? Thank you. And finally, because you're very good at asking questions, so you're very, very fast. I saw a hand uh, on this. So yes, please. It's so a question to Kevin. Um, you, you've been on the ground. Is, is the view now that extra legal and extra judicial actions by mainland security forces, um, is that a real thing in your view? Okay, so we have a, a new set of questions and please. Right, regarding the question of corporate governance, well, the majority of media organizations in Hong Kong are commercially run and they are not bound by any codes of corporate governance. The exception is that they come under some codes of practice that they have to follow, including certain, well, um, actually this applies to broadcasting organizations. Uh, not even to print organizations. Print organizations, they just need to register themselves and then follow the law and do not break the law. But broadcasting organizations, they, you have to follow particular um, provisions, including um, the, who are the directors, it has to be locally based, and then they can't 
um, import every program from outside. They have to be some locally sourced programs. So they are concerned about the cultural implications on society itself with regard to the ownership. There is also cross-ownership uh, regulation. Um, but online media, which is the growth area, do not come under these regulations either. Um, but the RTK Radio Television Hong Kong is a de facto uh, public service broadcaster, which in fact is a government department. Uh, it is governed by, um, well, there have been attempts to turn it into a public service, proper public service broadcaster to be governed by a charter, etc. But attempts to do that has failed. So therefore, in fact, again, it just runs as a government department <laughs> according to principles it sets up for itself. So in terms of corporate governance, um, there are not a lot of standards that are set for how these corporations need to be run. If, you are, if your question is concerning about public accountability and public interest, that aspect. Well, uh, on the question of universities, uh, I do think, I mean, uh, from my discussions with people at universities in Hong Kong, without going into too much detail, I do feel that there has, you know, certainly Hong Kong academia is considerably more open uh, than uh, academia at the moment uh, in the rest of China. Um, but I think that rather than seeing academia in China evolve more toward the Hong Kong model, I think we are seeing more pressure uh, for uh, Hong Kong academia to uh, be less confrontational. Um, I, I, I don't, uh, uh, I can't think of a public example that I can mention, but a, a number of people who I've spoken to who uh, have worked in Hong Kong uh, for a number of years uh, tell me about mm, difficult departmental politics, uh, comments about funding sources, and various other difficulties that suggest that there has been uh, sort of an attempt to uh, make academia a little more uh, politically correct. Um, thankfully, there are people uh, pushing back against that, and you know, if I was, uh, nobody's about to ask me to be uh, the chancellor of a Hong Kong university. But uh, if uh, someone did, uh, you know, I would just uh, certainly, you know, remind uh, students and faculty that, you know, uh, Hong Kong is still a place uh, with uh, freedom of assembly, uh, freedom of speech, freedom of publication, and that uh, if you don't uh, take advantage of those freedoms, uh, there is a, a very real possibility that one could lose them. Um, in terms of uh, the question of uh, extra-legal um, Chinese interventions in Hong Kong, um, there was um, the very, very confusing case uh, just about a week and a half ago of um, a gentleman associated with the uh, Democratic Party who uh, held a news conference alleging that he had been uh, kidnapped from Mong Kok and uh, tortured and interrogated by people speaking Putonghua. 
Lamb was subsequently arrested uh, for false reporting. Um, I can't even begin to sort of make sense of what actually happened there. Um, but I, I do want to say that if we step back uh, to look at the situation with the, the Causeway Bay booksellers. Um, there is a clear trend, I believe, of um, uh, agents uh, either of the PRC or affiliated with the PRC um, potentially engaging in activities in Hong Kong that would seem to be very much in violation uh, of the basic law. Um, and uh, the new, uh, of course, concern about this um, is uh, the issue of the uh, high-speed railway, um, which will uh, go into the heart of Hong Kong, um, and uh, wherein there will be uh, PRC border controls and uh, PRC law enacted. Um, I suppose the real question then is um, how constraints can be placed uh, to avoid that type of uh, either legalized or extra legal action. Um, and my, I guess, unfortunate conclusion would be that uh, I don't see many options at this point to actually prevent uh, that kind of activity. Um, so the only uh, thing we can rely on is uh, Beijing's restraint, which uh, in my experience uh, is not uh, anything that makes me particularly optimistic. Have been your final comment for the day. Yeah, I just addressed the question of universities. I have worked in uh, university in Hong Kong for nearly 20 years. Uh, there is real threat to academic freedom and autonomy of universities in Hong Kong. Hong Kong's universities rely on mainland students as a major source of revenue. Hong Kong scientists uh, rely on uh, collaboration with mainland counterparts in terms of labs, funding, and, and everything. Uh, in, uh, uh, when I was at uh, uh, CUHK, a Chinese university, uh, my university established a campus in, in Shenzhen, and there were serious concerns about are we going to have free internet, unrestricted internet access in that on that campus? Uh, can we discuss taboo topics uh, in teaching on that campus and so on? So uh, I guess uh, a, a, a vice chancellor of Hong Kong University will have to balance all these uh, very uh, difficult uh, factors. On the one hand, I would consider academic freedom uh, and autonomy of university to be something that is simply unnegotiable. Uh, but on the other hand, I think it is important to uh, tell the students that uh, uh, you need to look at, and this is something that I often talk to my students in, in Hong Kong, you need to look at the process of democratization in Hong Kong uh, from more than one perspective. China looks at Hong Kong's democratization as a process, whereas Hong Kong young people typically look at as something that should be achieved overnight. Now, when you look at from China's point of view, the reform story, the story of China is a story of incrementalism. Everything goes through a process. Everything goes step by step. Now, if you have 
talking about universal suffrage. If you have a, a direct election of the chief executive, even if it is subject to the control of a uh, less representative uh, election committee, isn't that still uh, a, an improvement, a progress from the previous system, the system that we are stuck with right now? I think these are important uh, issues that, 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 that students uh, ought to think about. But I think, for the same reasons, I would not be the Vice Chancellor of Hong Kong University. <laughs> and on, on this note, let me conclude the evening and thank our panel, Bing Lin, Kevin Carrick, and Joe Smith. And, and thank you to all of you for coming to this event and to, uh, for asking questions and making the discussion very lively. So thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.